Sometimes when I tell you stories, I change the names to, you know, protect the innocent. But I'm, I'm not going to do that this time. This, this is a story about me and Mike Hagan and Verna. Uh, we were on a, a Zoom call the other day, and we were doing it in my office, and Verna, who's our church chair, and Sajan, who is our financial officer, were Zooming in because they were remote, but Mike and I were here. And so we just sat in my office to be uh, on the call. And I put down my laptop on my desk and we sat in the two chairs in my office. And when I looked at the screen, we were like little teeny tiny on there. And I said to Mike, should we move closer? And he's like, no, I think we're fine. And I thought, maybe we should move closer, but I'm like, I don't really want to go to the trouble to move the chairs. They can at least figure out who we are. And so we started the uh, Zoom call and Verna was the first person on. And so we chit chatted for a second and I said, Verna, can you see us? We could move a little bit closer. And Verna's a very kind person. And so Verna said, no, 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 be comfortable. And I said, really, it's not about being comfortable. It's that we're too lazy to move the chairs any closer. And that was the truth. And so finally, we just decided to move the chairs a little bit closer because it wasn't that big of a deal. But there are so many instances in my life where I choose to do something or I don't choose to do something based on how inconvenienced it makes me. I mean, seriously, it was too much work to move a chair two feet closer. But we live out our lives like that, don't we, sometimes? So today we're going to look at some people who pushed through the inconvenience factor. Their lives got harder than they probably thought that it needed to be, and they went ahead and pushed through it. They, things got hard, and they kept on going. And we're going to stop throughout the reading because I want to humanize it for us. And I want to locate it in time and space. Sometimes when we read whole chunks, it's great because you get the movement but you miss some of the real human aspects of it. So we're going to break it up a little bit. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. After Jesus was born, we don't know how long this was, it could have been quick, it could have been a little bit longer. Your manger scene might not be right. It's possible that the Magi were not there with the oxen and with the sheep and with the shepherds, but they might have been because we just don't know. The, the reason we think that they came a little bit later is something that we infer from later on in the story, but we don't know. It was sometime after he was born. And who are the Magi? Well. For starters, the Magi is where we get our word for magician, which might give you a clue to some of the things that they did. They were scientists, they were astronomers, they were astrologers, they dealt in secret arts that most people didn't understand, and they primarily came from Persia and Babylon, or modern-day Iraq and Iran. And we know that during the Babylonian captivity, when the people of Israel were taken to Babylon 
and were encouraged to settle there, and many stayed in Babylon for the rest of their lives, that some of the Jews actually became magi. They became part of this class. And when the Jews became magi, they probably talked about their stories. They probably talked about their religion. They probably talked about their relationship to God. And so the Magi, if maybe they weren't Jewish themselves, and they probably weren't, they at least had some idea of the Jewish messianic expectations, that the Jewish people were looking for a savior who would come from God. So that is within the Magi tradition. The Magi also figure in another important part of our celebration. Many of you have heard the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, and maybe you've even heard that Christmas, the season of Christmas, is actually 12 days long, which is where the song comes from. Because in the church, we tend to have the holiday and then the season after it. So there's Christmas and Christmastide, and Christmastide lasts for 12 days and ends on Epiphany, which is the Feast of the Magi. It celebrates when the Gentiles came and saw Jesus, the revelation of God's saving plan to the world. So that's where the 12 days of Christmas comes from. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was one of the most famous kings during the time and he did a lot of building. If you ever travel to that area in Israel, and you should, you can still see monumental structures that Herod built. He was quite the builder. But Herod was also maybe crazy. At the very least, he was ruthless. And so when Herod heard that the Magi were looking for the king of the Jews, and Herod was pretty sure he was the king of the Jews, he became disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Why? Because of who knows what he would do. Caesar Augustus once said that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son, because Herod, being at least half Jewish, would have never eaten his pig, but he killed several of his sons. He was that kind of guy. If Herod was upset, who knew what he was going to do? Another interesting point at this in the, the narrative is that we know that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And we all just assume that Jesus was born in the year zero. And it doesn't really cause too much of a problem because there was a dating error done, done by a monk called Dionysius Exiguus in the fifth century, and he just calculated a few things wrong. And when, you know, he actually did a whole lot of good, so I say we cut him a little bit of slack. And the only reason that I bring that up is that a lot of people get tripped over some of the dating in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter. And a lot of it is over very minor points and just doesn't really have that much to do to the story. And I just don't want you to feel like your, your faith is built on a house of cards and it could just blow over. It's just not that big of a deal. I wouldn't get all worked up over dating. Um, and I wouldn't also spend a whole lot of time by, by uh, facts like that uh, proving or disproving the Bible. And if you have a question about those things, please engage me. Don't trust what BuzzFeed has to say. Verse 4. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, 
For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew, you have lots and lots of quotations of prophecies from the Old Testament. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a distinctive perspective from which they look. And Matthew is looking towards a Jewish audience to show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. So this is pretty typical of Matthew because he's trying to say, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one who was prophesied. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. There is something about this encounter that was a little bit unsettling for the Magi. It didn't feel right. And they just sit with it for a while. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Note the star. We'll get back to that later. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, with the exception of gold, those seem like strange gifts. I mean, a onesie, a case of diapers, that's more of an appropriate gift, but they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's also where we get the idea that there would have been three magi. But honestly, it's possible there were more, and a couple of them went in on a gift, like a baby shower. These really are standard gifts to offer a king. You would bring gold as a precious metal, frankincense is a perfume or incense, and myrrh is an anointing oil. So these would be typical gifts that you would bring if you were going to bring gifts to a king. Other people see that there is some symbolism in these gifts. Gold represents kingship, frankincense is a symbol of Jesus' priestly role, and myrrh is about death. It's an embalming spice. And one of the um, songs at Christmas, We Three Kings, is one of the main places that picks up what these three gifts were, and you'll hear it now every place you go. And there's some other people who think that the gifts were actually more practical than you might think, and they might have even been medicinal in nature. Some researchers at Cardiff University discovered that frankincense actually inhibits inflammation. So, aspirin? Verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So now that we've kind of looked at it in context and looked at it to humanize the story, I want to go back and look at a couple of big picture items. And I want to go back to the idea of the inconvenience factor, that this gets hard. So there you have the Magi. They're well-educated, they're wealthy, they're upper class, they're astronomers, they're astrologers, in the sense that they're looking for signs in the heaven that tell them about what's going to happen on earth. And they're searching for something. 
or at least they're aware of a category of things to watch for. You know, there's going to be some normal things, there's going to be some extraordinary things. You know, oh, that's a meteor. Oh, that's the International Space Section, uh, Space Station. Or, you know, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, oh, that's just still clouds. They, but they start to notice something unusual, and it triggers some thought. What is this odd, bright light? This star, this concept, what is this? Do you think this could be what we've waited for? What the Jews have talked about? What we've watched for? It just might be. And they must have thought it was a pretty good chance because they went to the trouble of buying gifts and bringing them. And then they actually have to do something about it. And there is always a difference between theory and praxis. There's always a difference between an abstract concept and a concrete one. There's a difference between thinking something is a good idea and actually doing it. Because the inconvenience factor comes up. It might get hard. You have to, might have to move your chairs. So, for the sake of argument, let's say that they are in Babylon and they see the star and they're going to follow the star and they have some idea that the star is over Israel. So let's say they're going to head towards the Jerusalem direction. How long does it take to get there? How far is it to go? Well, it's a little hard to figure out, but in another biblical record, Ezra made the trip and it took him four months. Now, he had a couple of other hangers on, but I'm not sure that the wise men traveled light either. So three months? That's a long journey. Why would they push through the inconvenience factor? They had to watch for years. They had to recognize what they saw and decide to do something about it. They had to go shopping for just the right gifts and then fit it in their luggage. They had to travel across the desert. They didn't really know where they were going. They had a really awkward meeting with Herod and they ended up in a barn. Has any great vision quest ever ended up in a barn? Those are all really hard things. They could have quit at any point along the way. Why did they do it? Why didn't they quit? Because it was worth it. What they were seeking was worth being inconvenienced for. Because they were looking for something that they didn't already have. What was that? I'm thinking that it was hope. They were looking for the person who would change everything in their lives and the world. And that was worth pushing through the hard stuff. That was worth being inconvenienced for. So let's talk about hard stuff. They're at one level just trying to follow God. They're trying to discover Jesus. That's a good thing, right? Is it really supposed to get hard? And why do we expect that good things will be easy. Why do we associate with e easy with being right and hard with being wrong? Because we know that anything worth doing is usually at least challenging, if not hard, right? I mean, marriage is hard work sometimes. I remember when Megan and I first got married, I had no idea how many annoying habits I had. And I can remember thinking, oh my gosh, is there anything left that we have to discuss more, really? Marriage can be hard, but it's worth it. 
Friendship can be hard. If you have a really good friend, some days that's hard work. If you want to excel at sports, if you want to play an instrument, if you're a dancer, if you want to get a degree, if you're trying not to do lasting psychological damage to your children, if you feel called to your job as a first responder, if you're a teacher, if you're a social worker, sometimes it's just plain hard. Some things are hard, but they're worth it. And sometimes when things are hard, what we need is perspective. The other day, Megan was at a crate and barrel store and it was kind of festive because everything is decorated for Christmas. And she got in line behind a woman who had wanted to buy some Christmas pillows. And she was having difficulty. And this woman was getting more and more agitated. And finally she said, I feel like the whole world is against me because her Christmas pillows were back ordered. Not that hard. Sometimes we just need some perspective about what we're going through. I remember years ago, one of my buddies was a high school principal. And in addition to the fact that we just like hanging out to each other, one day we went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and just had a blast. Um, but our jobs were a little bit similar. He was a high school principal. And we dealt with a lot of the same stresses, with a lot of same expectations and issues. We discovered that one of the major differences was that they could just look at their budget and then tax everyone, and I didn't have it that easy. And one day, because we had so much in common, I don't remember what I was complaining about, but I was complaining about some aspect of my job. And I remember, with compassion and a smile on his face, he looked at me and said, yeah, I know it's hard, but that's what we pay you to do. And I was like, mind blown. You're absolutely right. It's my job to take on the hard stuff. It doesn't mean that things are wrong. That's what I get paid to do. And it's been an enormous help in giving me perspective. The hard stuff comes across my desk. That's what I get paid to do. Sometimes it's about perspective. Sometimes you just need perspective. And honestly, when you're going through a hard time, particularly if it's a long time, sometimes you just need to give up. Now be careful how you interpret what I just said. Because I don't mean that you should just throw in the towel and quit. I think sometimes we do that too easily. What I mean is, that maybe you need to give up trying what you can't do. Maybe you need to give up and realize that you need a savior and the savior isn't you. You can't fix everything, but Jesus can. And think about my life, all the times that I have gone through really, really difficult times and how in my right mind in those times I have gone, God, this has got to be your deal. I can't handle this. I'm not going to be able to fix this situation. I've got to hand it off to you. Sometimes I need to give up thinking I'm the Messiah and trust the one who is. And then the peace, and then the joy, and then the hope begin to flow when I give up trying to be the Messiah. And some of us are walking through really difficult and hard times. 
Fighting a degenerative disease, as many of you are doing, is hard. It's hard if you can't find a job, if you've lost your job, if your finances are at stake. That's hard. It's hard when the washer overflows and ruins your floors. It's hard when you watch your kids struggle day after day at school. It's hard to watch your parents decline. In those moments, you can't change much. You've got to trust God, even if it's hard, because in the hard spots, you'll find God present. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament reminds me that God is not just a God of the mountaintops. He's also a God of the valleys. God isn't just a God of when things are easy. God is present in the difficult stuff. Keep looking and you'll find him. And that looking brings us back to another element in the story, and that's the star that I told you to remember from a few moments ago. So they're back in Babylon for the sake of the argument, and they see this star, or they see this conjunction of planets. And it must have been present for a while. It wasn't, look at that, oh, where'd it go? It, was, it must have been there for a while. But then apparently, it disappears. If you go back and read the text carefully, by the time they get to Israel, it's gone. And they can't see it anymore. So, does the star disappear? Does the star get obscured by the bright lights of the big city? Does the star no longer shine because they've stopped looking for it? Did they stop following the star because they got close and they knew where the king would be born? Where is the king of the Jews going to be born? Well, Jerusalem, duh. And maybe they quit following the star. Or maybe they got just enticed by the bright lights of the big city. But they get to Jerusalem and there's no king. I think sometimes we get distracted. We know we need strength. We know where to find hope. We know where to find peace. We know where to find joy. We know where to find love. But we see the lights of the big city and we think, oh, that's where I'll find what I'm looking for. The Magi get to the big city, but they don't find what they're looking for. Jesus isn't there. And isn't that the case for us sometimes? The new spouse was supposed to solve all the problems the old one created. Gossiping about your friend was supposed to get you in with the popular crowd. Keeping up with the Joneses was supposed to make you happy. Getting the promotion, getting into the school you wanted, on and on and on. You were supposed to find what you were looking for, but you didn't. Because behind the bright lights of the big city are just shadows. The wise men, the magi, didn't find what they were looking for. And now, they have to punt. And so in the story, you get the picture of them asking everyone they come across where the king is, because they don't go to Herod to ask the question. It says that Herod hears 
that they've been going around asking. So, I mean, I like picture them walking door to door going, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? And finally, Herod hears about it, and he calls them to come and meet with him. They do the obvious thing. They go to Jerusalem looking for what they are sure is going to be there. And it turns out to create problems. And they really know they've stepped in it when they meet with Herod. But even though they kind of messed it up, even though they got distracted by the bright lights or figured that they knew how, God, I can take it from here, when they realize they're in trouble, God gives them another way. And that's such good news. Because even when we've been distracted, God will still come through. God will open another door. Because now, the star pops up again. And when they see it, they rejoice. And I love that because I've known this story for forever. And I've always just assumed that when they saw the star way back in Babylon, that's when they rejoiced. They don't rejoice until they've lost the star and then they realize that it's come again. That's when they rejoice. I think they realize they got a second chance. They rejoice, they follow the star, and then they found what they were looking for. What a crazy year, again. If there's ever been a year where we need hope and love and joy and peace, this is that year. This is the year in the midst of all the hard things we're dealing with, that the message of Christmas seems more important than ever. And here's one more thought from the story. The scribes, the religious professionals, the deeply religious people, they knew where Jesus was born, but they didn't go. This Advent and Christmas, may that not be said of us. Let me ask you three questions. Number one, what are you looking for this Christmas? Number two, where by your actions are you searching for that? And number three, what seems to be unnecessarily hard?